David Southward is a senior lecturer at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee at the uh, Honors College. Uh, he lectures in modern literature and film. film. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. We're here in Gatineau, Quebec, just outside of Ottawa at the ACTC conference, which is a conference of what? Association for Cortex and Courses, it's people who teach in liberal arts, great books programs that have an interdisciplinary focus. Okay. You delivered a paper on the critic, American critic Lionel Trilling. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about Trilling. Uh, well, Trilling was a literary American literary critic practicing from the late 1930s to the 1970s, best known for a book called The Liberal Imagination, which is a collection of essays. Um, actually, almost all of Trilling's books are collections of, of essays that were written separately um, on individual works. It just seemed to be his preferred mode. He taught at Columbia University in their great books program, very you know, well-respected figure of his time. He's sort of a, known as a public literary critic, um, someone who had a name in, in a wider mass readership, not just among academics. So he was the James Wood of his day? Yeah, exactly. No, okay. that's, a, that's a pretty fair analogy. Okay, largely because he uh, admired the works of acknowledged, quote, great authors and disparaged uh, contemporary authors, or he didn't do as much of that. He, I mean, he, he often tended to write about the present in in terms of cultural cultural phenomena. Like I, he has an essay on the Kinsey Report, sexuality. Is, mm-hmm. He has essays on things like you know the reception of Freud um, in 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 our time. Um, so he, I mean, he was he was broadly interested in you know the culture of readers. And so, and, and, and so when he wrote about the present, he tended to write about cultural affairs more than, than actual texts. Okay. Um, I can't think of that many essays he wrote on books written in his time, literary works written in his time. Um, he wrote When he wrote about literature, it was mostly of the past and about how his own time was thinking about those books. And how was it thinking about those books? Trilling felt that um, as moderns, as, as 20th century readers, our sensibilities had had changed. Um, we had become um, obviously more individualistic, in some ways more subjective, more more relative, more skeptical uh, toward the past. Less willing to accept orthodoxy. Yes, exactly. Skeptical. Okay. Um, skeptical of you know transcendent truths. Um, and the institutions that form around them. Religion, obviously. Exactly. And that this made us, in some ways, unreceptive to certain works of the past. What, less willing to get solace from them? Exactly. That's a good way to put it, yes. Um, And pleasure. Some of the innocent pleasures of the past uh, were no longer available to the modern reader. Such as? Um, well, for instance, in this my paper, I wrote about um, an essay on Jane Austen's Emma, um, which Trilling likens to a a pastoral idyll, um, and then Emma lives in a community which is very unlike the communities of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. You know, Highbury is this you know lovely, harmonious English ag- agricultural community, uh, and that 
Emma, even though she is a, a very self-absorbed character, she is gently chastened by the figures around her um, and, and sort of brought back into the fold, you know, that she is um, ultimately um, harmonized with mm-hmm. the, the world around her. Um, and, that, and that's why, why readers, some readers, you know, just love Jane Austen. There's a bit of rebelliousness, but then she kind of comes around. Yes. And there's a wedding. Doesn't uh, E.M. Forster say something about lots of novels ending in weddings? Yeah. It's funny you mention Forster. He has one of my favorite Jane Austen lines, which is when he reads Jane Austen, it's with his mouth open and his mind closed. So in other words, Trilling is saying that our minds are no longer closed then. Right. But in some ways our mouths can't open <laughs> you know that uh he wishes there was more of a of a balance i think i think really deep down chilling was about balance the the flip side of balance is tension there ought to be some kind of tension in your soul that then you are fully alive um, and i think that he he felt that in some ways modernism had maybe tipped the scales too far mm-hmm. you know so that they're actually um, wasn't that healthy tension between the the orthodoxy of the past and the you know, unorthodox present? Is he saying then, because of this new skepticism, modern readers don't allow themselves the same pleasure, yes, or they they're are. not capable of it, or what? I don't, I don't think it's that they're incapable. It's that they they maybe repress certain elements of the self. Yeah, I mean, Trilling was a big reader of Freud. He really thought of the sensibilities of readers in a sort of psychoanalytic manner. When you form a self, you cut certain things out and keep others in. You know, that, that, that cells become, you know, rigid in that way. Freud's about balance, too, isn't he? I mean, you know, the id running yes. away with, and the superego, right. and it's, it's healthiness and balance. Yeah, harmony. So it's not that, that, that readers today are incapable right. of experiencing pleasure in, in, in Jane Austen. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, he says that you know, some readers are maybe too mindlessly in, in enjoying Jane Austen, but that we get hardened to certain what seem like uh, naive pleasures yeah. of the past. So in other words, it becomes overly sentimental to our mm-hmm. uh, discerning palate or that, uh, that it, it doesn't... Strike one as being authentic. realistic, authentic, mm-hmm. and he suggests that this is a, a loss. Then that's the implication, I think, of his essay. You know, if if you the thing about Trilling is he never he never formulates this mm-hmm. as a theory. He doesn't. He has no literary theory. I mean, that's, this was sort of what my my paper was about, um, and that's what makes him so difficult to. Um, in some ways to speak about, uh, and but also to communicate, you know, his his thinking because it's always seen in practice in a particular context, and so to try and derive like his philosophy yeah. is very challenging. But um, I would assume this was something he did intentionally. So you want to understand me, then look at my work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was originally going to be a, a writer and a novelist. I mean, he did publish quite a, a bit of fiction, but he's best known as a critic. He is a very creatively oriented critic. I mean, his, even his critical writings are, are very artful. Prose is very complex and nuanced and sort of unfolds in an almost narrative-like manner. Mm-hmm. It's not argumentative in a logical way. Um, it's more ruminative, I suppose. 
so what do you get out of this though? You're saying that, that he's reviewing these great works from the perspective of the contemporary world and he's saying there's a loss of innocence perhaps or he's regretting this? But it's not simply nostalgia. And again, here's where I think that idea of tension is so important. I think he's just, he's constantly reminding us of what we have cut ourselves off from. Not to say that we ought to go back to it, Mm. but that in order for us to really be whole as as readers, as as thinkers, as human beings, um, we've got to think about what it means to have given up certain elements of our of our past and of our previous culture. A certain trustingness that we've given up. Then. Mm-hmm. That communal life. A lot of this has to do with being Americans, um, I think, for, from Trilling's point of view. He writes in, in some of his essays about there being in America no kind of collectively understood sense of social life, you know, no, no manners. Because it's uh, a melting pot, it's a mm-hmm. country of immigrants uh, accommodating each other. Exactly. Always changing. And so therefore, we think in much more individual terms. We, we think of individuals sort of standing apart from any kind of yeah. social setting. And if you think about the great American novels, they're mm-hmm. all like that. They're all about individuals. Mm-hmm. It's frontier mentality versus a community. Right. You know, I mean, and it's it's hard to think of the American equivalent of, say, you know, Dickens or George Eliot, where you have you know these these sort of integrated um, communities, and that, that that sort of reflect a common understanding of the good or an accepted way of living. Yes. So what what's he getting at? I think it's that it's to remind us that. It's not that this that that situation is is right or wrong, but it's not the whole story, you know. And that there are losses involved, you know. There are losses involved in having no manners, you know, because then you're if you are an Emma and self-absorbed, there's nothing to bring you back in. <laughs> there's there's nothing to remind you um, of of a common good or a common truth. Almost of how you quote should be behaving like the superego tells you Mm -hmm. so there's this lawlessness or this over emphasis on the self yeah this narcissistic society potentially he's not necessarily lamenting this he's suggesting that this has affected the way we and differentiates the way we read Mm -hmm. great work yes it affects our tastes in some ways, that's what Trilling is always writing about. Taste as a cultural phenomenon um, and exploring its roots, you know, and how it has evolved. And also, I suppose, by shining a spotlight on society or contemporary mores or life, then you become aware of how the breakdown of community mm-hmm. affected what they thought was worthy of their interest. Mm-hmm. Yes. No, that's that's well put. Now, what's so complicated is that at the same time, Trilling was a great believer in modernist literature. Um, you know, it, it, of the most unorthodox kinds. Um, you know, Kafka and and Joyce and and Proust and Mann and I mean, th- those were actually the authors in whom he was you know steeped as a youth and who he revered. He very much revered. 
so there's there's a sort of a, a paradox here, which is that while Trilling, I think, sees the value of what's been lost in the modernist turn, he also is deeply committed to the modernist turn and to this freedom of imagination that it makes possible. And and he actually, I think, worries at times about modernism itself becoming institutionalized because it will lose its edge. It will lose that, that power of, of independence that it had. What's and, fascinating just listening to that, though, is that the whole idea of modernism sort of smashing the traditional narrative techniques and the same thing happening with society or, or even follow you know mm-hmm. society following that like what do you do after ulysses what does society do, do after society do i think i think trilling is really concerned about that um and became more so over time you know i mean i think initially in his youth he was um all for the smashing yeah but he, but he never he never gave it up in, in entirely, you know. I think there still is that independent streak in his later writings, particularly writing about the university. He, I mean, he spent his life in the university, and he was trying to teach these modernist works, these sort of icon-smashing works, which had become icons. Well, isn't that so much of what this whole postmodern experiment is about? Is Well, what do you do now? Like... These modernist experiments were astounding and revolutionary, but all we've gotten since then is sort of playing games with what's already been done. Yeah. Like, how do you smash something that's completely smashed Smashed into smithereens? Right, right. I mean, it seems like now the creative act would be to start (laughs) picking picking up those pieces and (laughs) seeing what can be reconstituted. Right. Um, Which, in a way, is what this great works... Very much so. But it can't be exactly the same as it was, right? Well, yeah, because forward. there's a self-awareness now, isn't there? Trilling, you're saying he doesn't pay much attention to the contemporary literary output. In his longer essays, for which he's best known, most of them are about writers of the, the past. There are you know, many reviews in which he writes about contemporaries, but that's, that's really not what he's principally known for. He's known for his teaching of, of modernism and for his reflections on the how, how it's changed our views of pre-modernist authors. And the interaction between politics and, and, and literature. Exactly. Could you, could you talk to that a bit? He, I believe, was... I hesitate to say this because I don't want to get my facts wrong, but I, I, I think he sort of flirted with communism in his youth and then eventually you know, turned against that quite strikingly. So, but he, he never lost sight of the, you know, the political ramifications of literature. And I think he always thought about literature as being enacted in the world. No matter what he was reading, he thought of style, literary style, as being reflective of sort of real-life human gestures that were also taking place in the world around him. Yeah. So politics and literature are are intimately intertwined. Let me just quote from the preface to his preface to the liberal imagination where he says, Of the writers of the last 150 years who command our continuing attention, the very large majority have in one way or another turned their passions, their 
adverse, critical, and very intense passions upon the condition of the polity, the preoccupation with the research into the self that has marked this literature, and the revival of the concepts of religion that has marked a notable part of it, do not controvert, but rather support the statement about its essential commitments to politics. That's typical Chilling and being sort of circumspect. He often doesn't take a stand on something he's observing. He's just sort of observing it and letting you think about its implications. Yeah, so so in other words, he's not a very satisfying critic then. <laughs> he's not a partisan. He's, I mean, even when you know he wrote this book called The Liberal Imagination... Um, from you know the, the liberal perspective, but really what he's what it's addressing is blind spots within liberalism. He's concerned that in this sort of tide of change that modernism initiates and, and the sort of rise of, of modern liberalism, something gets omitted. You know, something gets lost. These blind spots are created, and he's trying to shine a light on them, and so that people can become more aware of what they're not thinking about anymore. Here, for example, at the end of the preface, he says, the job of criticism would seem to be then to recall liberalism to its first essential imagination of variousness and possibility, which implies the awareness of complexity and difficulty. To carry out the job of criticizing the liberal imagination, literature has a unique relevance, not merely because so much of modern literature has explicitly directed itself upon politics, but more importantly because literature is the human activity that takes the fullest and most precise account of variousness possibility, complexity, and difficulty. That sums it up better than I ever could. I think Trilling was was concerned that liberalism, it was an ideology, and any ideology is going to suppress certain elements of human experience. And so he's trying to keep those alive, trying to keep them in play. He's saying that the imagination is boundless. Yes, in, in any given time period, some aspect of it will be unavailable. It will be cordoned off. It will be invisible. And it's the, the task of the writer to free that part of the imagination that's not available at a given time. Can you go a bit deeper into that one? Any culture has confining conditions, certain constraints upon what it allows the people within it to think God. Maybe not think, to do. I mean, it's, you can think whatever you want to think in a free society, as long as you don't do. I don't know. Can you think whatever you want to think? Can't, you're allowed to. You're permitted to. Yeah. But are you able to? If, if you can think it. If you, you can, can think it, that's the thing. But, but you've got to have imagination to that, be able to, be to, able do to that. think it, yes. There are things that in, in a certain society... You may not be able to imagine certain things because it's just beyond your ken. Yes. There's a wonderful Borges story about a medieval Muslim scholar who is trying to... He's been reading Aristotle in translation, I presume, and comes upon these terms tragedy and comedy and is just deeply puzzled by these. Just cannot fathom what what these mean the story is sort of about him trying to conceive of what what this could refer to the beauty of the story is that from our perspective these these terms are so obvious 
um, and so rich, so rich with meaning. But to a culture that has no tradition of drama, they are literally unimaginable. Mm-hmm. You just can't think it. So though that's the kind of limits on the imagination that I think Trilling was concerned about. Then it takes an extraordinary genius with unlimited imagination to come up with. That's what's so wonderful about, about literature. Right. There are geniuses who conceive of things that yes. no one else can. Yes, and then as soon as, as everyone else reads it, they think, oh, well, why didn't I think of that? Yeah, it was so simple. It was so simple. He is trying to keep complexity, um, imagination, freedom in, in play, keeping us alert to the, the sort of mental constraints on whatever way of life we happen to be following. So he's really preaching open-mindedness. Yeah, exactly. The liberal imagination. But, but again, and here's where the, the complexity comes in. If Trilling saw the way the value of tolerance was being, you know, hailed by everyone. And I, I think he would then start writing about that. Like, what, what what does it mean to be tolerant? In other words, he could, at some point, he would he would question open-mindedness itself. Because it become accepted so orthodoxy? Exactly, orthodoxy, yeah. That any idea can become rigid in practice. Okay. Um, and he's trying to keep ideas from becoming rigid so that we can live with them in a more fulfilling way open to uh, an accepting of anything in a political sense and in in a literary sense i think so open and accepting but also questioning and was this new did chilling do anything that was different or he just did it more articulately i think it's that he never formulated this as a position he never sort of codified his thinking this would be as close as to yes. this, this passage that I read. Yeah, there's a real, there's an elusive quality about him. You know, you've, you've sort of got to keep reading Trilling to understand what he's getting at and, and what, what the value is of what he's getting at. But, you, you know, you can, you can never just summarize it in a neat way and, and be done with it. And I suppose that's the kind of criticism that he's interested in, the kind that doesn't try to tie things up in a bow. Right. It's a, it's a way of thinking, you know. It's not, it's not that he's got some theory that he's just churning every new work through yeah. um, so that it comes out looking the same. It's that he's got a sensibility that is so multifaceted that whatever it, it brushes up against, it's going to illuminate in some fascinating way. He's just got this really vibrant mind. And it's that, that vibrancy, that vitality of his thinking that I think is so exciting because it's unpredictable. Because he's not, he hasn't got any uh, hidden ideological agenda. Right. Well, that sounds refreshing in these particularly polarized yes. days in American politics. And, and you know, the, we need a trilling now because he's he's so diplomatic. And that, that was the great thing about him is he wasn't, he wasn't a partisan. He was very much about trying to see things from, from multiple perspectives. Well, that's but, why it's so refreshing coming from one thinker, a thinker who can be passionate and forceful and make arguments that are both right-wing in one instance and left-wing in another. Mm-hmm. Without seeming confused or incoherent or yeah. bland. 
he is a pretty good model. Fairly, that's why you're you're yeah, interested in him. He's a hard act to follow, <laughs> and it would be very challenging to try and write like Trilling today, simply because our cultural situation is, I think, so much more complex. I mean, the the world we live in is is you know has become even more bewildering in many ways. Very much, uh, ironically, because ideologies are more than ever kind of in each other's mm-hmm. faces. Yeah, they proliferate daily. So to be a trilling today, you'd have to have just some remarkably broad perspective and be very well read. Anyone come close? You mentioned James Wood, who I I really respect and enjoy. I I don't think he is quite as um, interested in these sorts of sociocultural phenomena as Trilling. I think Wood is more firmly in the tradition of literary criticism, but I think he does it extremely well. I cannot think of anyone off the top of my head that I could really compare him to. Well, let's live in hope then. Yeah. Thanks very much. Thank you. I've been speaking with uh, David Southward, who is a uh, senior lecturer at University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, who teaches in the Honors College there. Thanks again.